Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. One of the most effective horror movie tropes is isolation. Separate the protagonist from all help, driving them to fear and despair. In Christ, we are never alone and always have a helper. Teaching team member Caleb Click continues the series Glory of Christ with this sermon entitled The Glory of Christ from the Spirit, which covers John chapter 16, verses 4 to 15. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. If you've got your Bibles, Turn to John chapter 16. We're we're continuing in our series on the glory of Christ. And we'll be starting here in verse 4. And as you're turning there, let me set the stage for what's happening. Jesus has told his disciples that he is about to leave. That he is going to be killed and the Father is going to raise him and he is going to go back to his Father's right hand to be restored to the glory that has always been his And the disciples, the disciples, they're going to be left in the world to bear witness to Jesus and to his work. And as Jesus tells them this, Jesus tells them, that gives them this warning. The world, the very world he's leaving them in, it is a world that hates him. And it will hate them too. And it will even, in their hatred, try to kill them. And so if you're the disciples, there has to be running through your mind some questions. Why would Jesus, why would Jesus who so loves us, who has been more faithful to us than any other friend, who is full of mercy and compassion and grace, why would Jesus leave us seemingly alone now? And this, this is Jesus' answer. Read with me in verse 4. Starting in the second half. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? None of you are concerned about the significance of what's about to take place. But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, the Christ. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will not see me any longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them. Now, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, you are the giver of every good and perfect gift. And Lord, there is no gift that is greater than the one you've given in your Son. And yet, Lord, you were not content simply to send the Son, but you sent the Spirit too. 
And so, Lord, we pray, would you move in our midst? Would your spirit give us eyes to see and ears to hear? And would the truth of this passage be one we not only learn, but, Lord, experience by your mighty right hand? Would you do this in Jesus' precious name? Amen. There's nothing more frightening than being alone in a scary place. When I was in fifth grade, my elementary school took us all on a class field trip where we stayed overnight at a local state park in these cabins. And because we were fifth grade boys and they didn't want us to descend into some sort of Lord of the Flies chaos, they decided that it was a good idea, and I'm, in retrospect it was, to install in every single one of these cabins, not only middle school boys and their cabins and girls and theirs, but a single parent who had to endure this for the week. You know, heaven help them. Well, one night, while we were at this camp, our parents, the parent who was supposed to be watching over us, she disappeared. Now, it all turned out to be fine, but in our mind, she went out into the darkness, and from the darkness, she did not return, and while she was gone, a storm started where there was lightning flashing and rain falling and thunder roaring, and with every minute that passed, the, all of us in that cabin, all of us begin to get more and more frightened. We begin to wonder where she might be, and this was in the days before cell phones. You couldn't just text her and ask her where she had gone. Instead, you were just left with the questions. Where had she gone? Why were we here? Were we alone? Had something bad happened? And the individual terror that each one of us had, it began to fuel into this collective fear that spilled out into one of the most surreal things I've ever experienced. All these fifth grade boys tough boys who thought they were so cool and scared of nothing, we all started spontaneously praying out loud. You had kids from Muslim families, Hindu families, Christian families, non-religious families, and every one of us, we were calling out to whatever God we had been raised with or ones maybe we were just hoping were out there because we were scared. Because we were alone. And to be alone is a frightening thing. How much greater the terror if the enemies you were left alone to face are not imaginary ones like the ones that faced us that night, but real ones like the ones Jesus has left for his disciples to face. The disciples, they're going, Jesus, why would this be the plan? Why would for three and a half years, would you let us taste of your goodness and experience your guidance? And then right here, in the moment when you were calling us to the greatest task you could ever call us to bear witness to you, and you were leaving us facing the greatest danger we have ever faced, why right here would you suddenly say to us, I am going back to the Father and I am leaving you here seemingly alone? It's the same question we ask, isn't it? You know, I don't think I've ever spoken to a believer who at some point in their life has not just wondered, Jesus, why? I just want to see you. I want to be able to, to touch you and be touched by you in the same way that the disciples were. I want to hear your voice in the way that they did because I feel so alone. I see the coldness of this world and the tallness of this task. 
And I see the hostility of this world, the same hostility that you saw, the same hostility that was visited on the disciples, the same hostility that lives and breathes today. And so there's the question, Jesus, why would you do this? Would we not be better served if you were here bodily in our midst? Jesus, Jesus says, here's my answer. Here's the why. Because I love you. I'm going away, not that you would have less of me. I'm going away that you would have still more. I'm going away, not that you would be conquered by the world, but that the world would be conquered. I'm going away, not that you would be left adrift, but that you would be truly led. I'm going back to the Father. Not that so you would be left here alone without a helper, but that so another helper could come. One who would be with you forever so that you would never need to fear being alone again because while I in my bodily presence, I can comfort only a few. And then only in one place at one time, this helper, this helper can comfort every believer in every place and all at the same time. And in my bodily absence, this helper convicts the world that hates me and guides the church that loves me and in a way that moves you not past me, but instead gives you more of me than you have ever had before. Why? Because he lives and breathes to glorify me. Verse seven. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage, it's for your good that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. You won't receive him if I stay here in your midst. I need to go so that I can give you something good. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Jesus says, first, this helper, the Holy Spirit, he convicts the world. You know, in John's gospel, the world is sinful humanity. The world is this place that in its enmity within, against God is willfully blind to the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. The world is that place that so hates Jesus, it will crucify him, and so hates his disciples, it kills some of them too. And yet, while John is abundantly clear that that's what the world is, John also adds this seemingly irreconcilable fact. That same world, that is also the world that God in his mercy loves. As he says in John 3, for God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. One of the most insightful things I have ever read was B.B. Warfield's exposition of just that text. Because B.B. Warfield says that text, the emphasis of that text, it's not on the size of God's love. That it could contain the size of the world, the expanse of the world that's so big. Warfield says no, the emphasis of that text 
It is on the incredible nature of the love of God that he could look on the world that had rejected him and rebelled against him that was so full of ugliness and pain and sin and love it still and care for it in such a way that he was not only moved with compassion, but he would be moved to redeem it, even at the cost of the beloved son. It's the world that when Jesus came into its midst, it's that world that did not receive him, but instead rejected him, and did not just reject him, but crucified him. Jesus, Jesus says to the disciples, that's where I'm leaving you. It's in that world that hates me. And I am sending you to bear witness to that world that I love it. And I have loved it in the sun. But I am not leaving you alone. I am sending one who will do for you what you cannot do yourselves. One who will call people out of darkness and into light. One who will give people who have hearts of stones, hearts of flesh. One who will take the blinders that have covered our eyes and finally lift them. The Holy Spirit who convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. God so loved the world, he sent the Son. But that same God also so loved the world that through the Son, he sent the Spirit. Because it is the Spirit who convicts us first concerning Sin. Verse 9. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. You know, if I, if I was to ask this room and take an informal poll and say, what are the worst sins that you could imagine? What are those things that you think of when you think of depravity and brokenness and rebellion? I'm sure that our list would get really long really quick. We'd list genocide, child abuse, rape, a whole host of other horrible things. And Jesus, if he heard that list, Jesus would probably nod his head and say, those are pretty bad. Those are sin. Those are things to be hated and to be decried and to be mourned. But if that's all you think sin is, then you have not looked deep enough. Because the sin behind every sin the root of the whole tree of which those awful things are just the ugly fruit. It's this, verse nine, they did not believe in me. The place where the ugliness of human hearts is most clearly revealed, it is that when God in his love and mercy sent the son on a ministry of mercy, to save a world that could not save itself, the world looked at him and said, we would rather have something else. And the same delusion that destroyed Adam and Eve and every man, woman, and child who has come from that line, that the things that God says that we need are not actually what we need. And thus that the solution that God offers in Christ is not actually the solution that we need. That, that is sin in all of its ugliness. We see the goodness of God and we decide we'd rather go to another place. We treat Jesus as if he's just not that important. And yet Jesus says, here again is God's mercy. He didn't just send the son. 
He sends the Spirit so that people who are blind to their sin and cannot see it would have the blinders lifted so they would truly see and realize the ugliness that lurks in every single human heart. We did not believe in him. The Spirit shows you the true nature of sin. But he also convicts us of something else, of righteousness. Verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. You know, in the same way that the world is confused about sin, we're confused about righteousness too. We think of righteousness, well, maybe we could crassly term that thing that separates those that we think are good and those that we think are bad. Those that have the favor of God and those who do not. We tend to think that righteousness is something that we can discern with human eyes. Righteous, righteous people are those who conform to our sense of religious norms. It's the people who share our political positions. It's the ones who hate what we hate and love what we love. It's the ones who outwardly conform to whatever standard you want to apply. And that is something that you will find the world around. It doesn't matter where you go. The values might change, but that conception of what righteousness is, is pretty much the same. Until you run into Jesus. Because in Jesus, that entire conception finds a buzzsaw that destroys it utterly. Because in his ministry, what does Jesus start teaching? The ones the world thinks are most righteous. The ones who think themselves the most righteous. The religious leaders in particular, which is kind of frightening for me as a pastor, they are not the ones who are closest to God. They're actually the ones who are the farthest off. And the ones that the world looks at and says they have nothing, the ones who know they have nothing, Jesus says those are the ones who are actually closest to being found. Righteousness. In the economy of Jesus, righteousness isn't something that you can earn. Righteousness isn't something necessarily that you can discern with the human eye. Righteousness. True righteousness. The righteousness that matters it is a gift that is received by faith in the only one who is truly righteous. And guess what? That is not you. The Spirit. The Spirit takes a world that looked at Jesus and judged him to be a sinner and crucified him as such. And the Spirit lifts our eyes to see this reality that the one we killed as Peter says in Acts chapter two, the one we killed, that is the one that the father raised from the dead. And in raising him from the dead, he declared him to be both Lord and Christ, both God and savior. And while the world might've judged him as unrighteous, God, the one whose voice actually matters, he has said, no, here is the righteous one. Here is the righteousness the world's need. Here is the righteousness it does not possess. And yet here is what the spirit would have you see. It is a righteousness that is offered to you in Christ. That's righteousness. It is this thing that we do not possess. And yet Jesus offers in full through his person and his work. 
As Jesus says in John 20 when Thomas is talking to him, in this moment when Thomas has been doubting, he's, he's not sure that he can really trust that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And so Jesus shows up and he says, here's my hands and my feet, touch them. And John touches his hands and his, or Thomas touches his hands and his feet and Thomas says, my Lord and my God, literally you were vindicated in my eyes. I know you are who you say you are. I am sorry I ever doubted. You are clearly the righteous one. And Jesus says this, have you believed because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen, that's us, and yet have believed. If the true nature of sin is unbelief, the true nature of righteousness, it is faith in the one whom God has sent. Righteousness is a gift to be received from him and from him alone. But the Spirit, the Spirit doesn't stop there. He doesn't just convict of sin and of righteousness. He convicts of judgment. Verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. You know, once again, Jesus points us to something that's invisible to human eyes. A reality that can only be discerned through the work of the Spirit. Because if we're left to what our eyes can see, then the cross of Jesus Christ, it does not look like the ruler of this world's defeat. It looks like his victory, doesn't it? Because when we look around the world, the reality of our day-to-day -day lives, what do we see? Not a world suddenly made new in every single way. We see brokenness. Broken societies, broken families, and broken people. We see a world where evil seems to prosper and good seems to suffer, where the church, wherever she goes, in ways large and small, seems to find herself facing opposition. If you are going just by what your eyes can see, it does not look like the ruler of this world has been defeated. But the Spirit, the Spirit takes what our eyes can't see. And just as it does with sin and righteousness, it lifts the veil so that you would see what only God can. That as Jesus says in John 12, the cross, it's not the ruler of this world's victory, it is his defeat. And that while he still thrashes, and his thrashing hurts and even wounds, his thrashing is that of a creature who once had power but now has it no more. Who knows that he's lost it. Who knows that the day has already been won. That when Jesus was lifted up on the cross, the ruler of this world, he was cast down. And every day from that one to this one is a day closer to the moment when the judgment of God will fall on the ruler of this world in full. And everything will be made new. The Spirit takes the veil and lifts it up so that we would see this world as it actually is and not as politics and the news and our personal experiences would make us think. He says, here is what is true. Here is what is coming. Here is the reality that is better than any other. The ruler of this world, he may be virulent, but he is not victorious. The church may live in a world that is hostile to God in every single way. It may suffer, it may look small, it may look weak, but the church militant, it is not the church defeated because the church stands in Christ. 
And as surely as he has been raised, and as surely as he will return, victory, it belongs to the people of God in Jesus. That's the work of the Spirit. The Spirit takes these realities that are hidden from human eyes and are only spiritually discerned, and it gives us the eyes of faith that we would see. It calls people out of darkness and into light, out of death and into the life of Christ. And I want us to notice this. In every step, did you notice who it all orbits around? Not the Spirit. Not God the Father, though they are immensely important in all of this. Who is the one that all of this centers around? Jesus. What's the nature of true sin? Unbelief in the Christ. What's the nature of true righteousness? Faith in the Christ. What is the nature of true judgment? The victory of Christ. The Spirit. The Spirit continues the work of Jesus in the world. I mean, if you were sitting here in the seats this morning or at home on your couch listening to this sermon and you were a believer in Jesus Christ, do you realize that that is because God so loved the world and so loved you that he not only sent the Son, but through the Son, the Spirit, to perform that ministry on your behalf that you would be blind no more, but that you would see. And while Jesus has left you in this world without his bodily presence, and called you as a believer to bear witness to him in the midst of this world with all of its hostility. He hasn't left you. He hasn't left you to be the true evangelist. He sent his spirit. The spirit who was at work then and is at work today, who takes hearts of stone and turns them into hearts of flesh. It's that work of the Spirit that turned Doug Logan's life upside down. That name may not be familiar to many of you, but Doug Logan is an African-American teaching elder in the Presbyterian Church in America, which is our denomination, and he's also the president of Grimke Seminary. But when Doug Logan was young, uh, he was not a man who was very fond of Jesus. He looked at Jesus and everything Jesus stood for, and he thought it was a bunch of foolishness. Jesus was for the weak, and Doug Logan, Doug Logan was strong. But a funny thing happened. Doug Logan owned a barber shop. And because he didn't like people stealing from him, he decided the best way to stop that from actually happening was to hire Christians, because they may believe wacky things, but in his mind, they're less likely to steal from me. Now, whether he was right on that, who knows? But that was his thought. But here was the problem with hiring Christians. What do Christians tend to do? They tend to talk about Jesus. And these particular Christian brothers, they were intent on talking about Jesus to Doug. And as brothers of a Pentecostal variety, they weren't just telling him about Jesus, they were prophesying to him in the name of Jesus. He would come in the barbershop door and they would say, Doug, in the name of Jesus, we declare that you are going to stop running your mouth for the devil and you're going to start running it for Jesus. And better yet, you're going to be a pastor. And Doug Logan would respond to them with words that I can't share in the pulpit because he was not a fan of that idea and he wanted to live his life in his own way. Well, then one night at three in the morning, a siren went off and Doug Doug snapped awake. 
And in that moment, he thought with all of his heart that that siren was the trumpet that his Pentecostal dispensational brothers had told him would announce the rapture. That moment when all Christians in the world would be snatched away and the, those who were left behind would be the unbelievers. Something that, you know, we as a church uh, don't share that belief. We believe Jesus is coming back. He's going to judge the living and the dead. We just have a different view than our dispensational brothers on how that's going to happen and in what form. But that's what he believed. That's what these men had told him. So he hears the siren, he thinks this is the moment, and he was so panicked, he ran out into the street in his underwear looking around for crashed planes because he thought the Christian pilots were all gonna be sucked out of the cockpit, and what's that mean? Explosions and fire everywhere. Cars should be in like light poles. But when he got outside into the street, it was just silence, and a man in his underwear panicked. And so he called one of these Christian men who'd been sharing the gospel with him to tell him what was happening, which is a call. I mean, I can't imagine what that must have felt like to get that phone call. And as the reality set in that the rapture hadn't happened, his Christian brother, he was still on the phone. He was still here. Well, that fear faded. Something else didn't fade. And that was the conviction that Jesus, well, before he had thought he was foolishness, now... Now he was sure of this, Jesus, he was someone real and true and someone that he had to do business with. And that very night, at that very moment, he prayed to receive Christ. And when he woke up that morning, he told the woman he was living with, we're getting married today at the courthouse, no ifs, ands, or buts. And they went and got married that day. And then he went out into the streets and he began to preach the gospel. And the man the man who had been running his mouth for the devil, he began to run it for Jesus. And now he's a teaching elder in this denomination who runs a seminary that trains men and women to run their mouths for Jesus too. The very person that Doug once thought was foolishness. How do you explain a story like that? Jesus says, I'll tell you how. It's the work of the Holy Spirit who convicted him of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of a God of such love, he sent not only his son, but his spirit that an unbelieving world who could never believe on their own, who could never see on their own, would have the veil lifted and their hearts changed. And faith, which is not a work of man, but a gift of God, faith would actually be theirs. And they could receive the righteousness that was Christ alone. The spirit continues the work of God in the world. But Jesus, Jesus says there's still one thing more the spirit does. The Spirit guides the church. And I know I'm, I'm light on time here, so I'm going to make this swift. Look at verse 12 with me. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What's Jesus saying here? 
Jesus, in no uncertain terms, Jesus is saying, I'm not done with my church. There are things that I have not said that they need to hear. There are things they are not yet ready for in their weakness that I need them to know. And so I am sending the Spirit. I'm sending the Spirit to speak what, they, what he hears from me and to declare to you what is actually mine. I'm sending the spirit of truth who will guide you into all the truth, the truth that is who? Jesus. So that the reality that has always been staring you in the face but you could not comprehend, the full implications of my person and work, it would be unfolded to you in all of its glory, goodness, and grace. And not only would you see it, you would know it and receive it in full. I'm sending him so that you would know the things that are to come. Those things that are the consequence of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God in Jesus Christ. And the victory over the ruler of this world that it proclaims. Do you want to hear all this summed up in just a very short sentence? What does it mean to be guided by the Holy Spirit according to Jesus? It's to be guided by Jesus himself into the depths that are contained in Jesus himself. Because there is such a union between these two persons in the Godhead that as Jesus said before, that to see me is to see the Father also. To hear the Spirit is to hear the Son also. It's such a close union that at other places in the New Testament, the Spirit is referred to quite literally as the Spirit of Christ. God is in work in the midst of his church. He has not abandoned her. He has made himself known to her and has made his presence felt with her in a deeper way than ever before. All of the 12, through their three and a half years with Jesus, there were moments when they were not physically with Jesus. He would go off to some other place and they would be off in another place and they were not with him. But now through the spirit, there is not one believer who does not have the presence of Jesus right now. He is bodily in heaven, but spiritually with us through the spirit and he guides us still. Now here's where I have to say one thing because I am really afraid that there is a misconception that some of us have about what Jesus means here. What Jesus describes here as the work of the Spirit, it does not mean this. It is not this sort of vague spiritual guidance where as Christians we have to go out and strain our ears to hear the whisper of Jesus' voice on the wind. It's not like that Pocahontas song. It's not this woo-woo, rah-rah, experiential thing that gets emphasized in certain Christian circles. Not that experience is not important. It is a part of this. It is also not that Jesus, in saying that the Spirit will teach you those things that are to come, it's not that the Spirit is going to suddenly tell you who you're supposed to marry tomorrow, or what job you're supposed to take, or what cereal you're supposed to be in the morning. It is not going to tell you each dot, jot and tittle of your schedule tomorrow. Because here's the thing I think we, as, as, a, as Christians in America, who are incredibly individualistic, Here's what I think we tend to do and we shouldn't. We read this text and we think Jesus is speaking to us. Who's he actually speaking to? This text is written for you. It, it applies to you. 
but it is not spoken to you. Jesus spoke these words to the 11 disciples who remained after Judas departed. Jesus spoke these words to the men that he had entrusted to bear witness about him in the midst of the world, not just with their voices, but with their pens. The men whose ministry would one day produce the Bible you hold in your hands. How, how does the Spirit guide us into all the truth? In and through the Word. Because in its pages we find everything we need for our present peace and sanctification. The full disclosure of who Jesus is and what he has done. Where do we go if we want to know those things that are going to come? We go to the scriptures where the full implications of Jesus' saving work are unfolded and the victory over the evil one that will one day come in full at Jesus' return is proclaimed. Do you want to hear the voice of Jesus? Don't start by chasing the wind. You start here. Do you want to know if the voice you have heard is the voice of the Spirit of Christ? You don't check and see what your heart says to you. You go to the Word and you test it according to the Scriptures. Because it is in and through the Word that the Spirit speaks. I, for one, am so grateful for this truth. Because left to my own devices, I am prone to think that I have been left alone. Here's the gift of God. When I pick up the scriptures and I begin to read the witness of the disciples that has been entrusted to them by Jesus, the spirit, the spirit takes those words. He takes those realities he takes the work of Jesus and he applies it to me so that you and I and every believer, we would know that we are not alone, that the one who has gone away has gone away, not that we would have less of him, but that we would have more than we had ever had before, that he has sent the spirit to convict the world and to guide the church, not past Jesus, but instead deeper in. God so loved the world that he sent not only his son, but through the Son, he sent the Spirit so that people who did not on their own receive him, who could not see him apart from his intervention, so they would have their eyes opened and in seeing him, they would know him and in knowing him, they too would have eternal life. Praise the Father. Praise the Son. Praise the Holy Spirit. Amen. Gracious Father, we are grateful this morning that you are a God of infinite glory and goodness who pours out your gifts on men. Would you pour this one out on us in ever richer and deeper ways? Would the spirit of truth guide us into the one who is himself the truth? Would we know you? Would we love you? Would we delight in you? And Lord, would we follow you as those who have seen, not with physical eyes, but the eyes of faith? Would you do this through Jesus Christ, your son? Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. 
Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.